Welcome to Every Moment His, a podcast dedicated to how God's preached word affects every moment of our daily lives. This sermon was preached by Pastor John Rasmussen at Holy Cross Lutheran Church. Would you please pray with me as we prepare to hear God's word? O Lord, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of each of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, help us through the hearing of your word to mature today and to grow. In Jesus' name, amen. I'd invite you to open up your Romans journal to Romans chapter 9. We'll be starting at the 14th verse. Uh, If you're like me and you don't have a Romans journal because you forgot yours, I had to make a photocopy, uh, you can use the Pew Bible on page 945. Uh, So our text today is Romans 9. Uh, We're continuing where we uh, left off last week in Romans 9. And just a word before we get going here, uh, Romans 9 is one of the most controversial uncomfortable parts of Holy Scripture in the history of the church. But if we read it correctly, if we have the maturity to understand what it's saying, Romans 9 is also one of the most freeing and comforting chapters in Holy Scripture. The Apostle Paul is dealing with the painful, very real and painful question of why are some people saved And why are others not? Why do some people hear the gospel and they readily accept it like seed sown onto fertile ground? It sprouts up and grows. And other people, they hear it and it's like seed hitting up against hard, stony ground. Why why is there that difference? This is the classic question that's called the cross of the theologian, meaning that it's a painful question. Why some and not others? Paul's wrestling with that question within the context of his own people, Israel. Paul went out and he preached in the synagogues. We read about that in the book of Acts. He proclaimed the message of salvation that was for the people of Israel, and yet, by and large, the people of Israel rejected the gospel. They were hardened against it, and only a remnant were saved. For us, this would probably be a a painful personal question as we know those uh, who we wonder why have they not believed the gospel when they've heard it uh, so often. Uh, so when it comes to Romans 9, I think it's good to have uh, a little bit of, a, I guess you'd call it like an um, advisory, mature content uh, kind of warning label. Uh, this chapter, Romans 9, is for mature audiences only. Now, before you put your hands over the kids' ears, I'm not talking about that kind of maturity. Uh, we're talking about theological maturity, these big ideas, these big mysteries uh, that it takes some Christian maturity to deal with. Uh, you know, even 500-some years ago, Martin Luther, writing in his preface to the Romans, his introduction to Romans gave a warning about this chapter. This is kind of a lengthy quote from Luther, but I think it's helpful as we navigate this text together. Go ahead and read it here. So Luther says about Romans 9, he says, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, Paul deals with the eternal providence of God. It is by this 
providence that it was first decided who should and who should not have faith, who should conquer sin and who should not be able to. This is a matter that is taken out of our hands and is solely at God's disposal so that we might become truly righteous. And this is our greatest need. We are so weak and wavering that if it were left to us, surely not a single person would be saved and the devil would certainly overpower us all. At this stage, we must put a stop to those impious and arrogant persons who use their reasoning powers here first and in their high and mighty way begin to probe into the deeps of the divine providence. But you must study this epistle yourself, Romans, chapter by chapter. Concentrate first on Christ and his gospel in order to learn how to recognize your sins and to know his grace. And then when you have arrived at chapter 8, dominated by the cross and the passion of Christ, you will learn the right way of understanding the divine providence in chapters 9, 10, and 11 and the assurance that it gives. If we do not feel the weight of the passion, the cross, and the death, we cannot cope with the problem of providence without either hurt to ourselves or secret anger with God. That is why the Adam in us has to be quite dead before we can bear this doctrine and drink this strong wine without harm. So, so Luther's pinpointing the problem, the issue, this is the eternal providence of God, or we also call this his predestination, uh, which stirs up a lot of uncomfortable questions for us because all of a sudden we're not in control, right? Um, and Luther says, look, if you're going to understand this doctrine, which is solidly taught in Scripture, top and bottom, if you're going to really understand this, you have to first understand the deep love of Christ shown to the world and shown to you and me in the cross and his passion and his resurrection. And when we've drunk the depths of that and found the comfort of that and the refuge of that, then we begin, can begin to start about this painful, perplexing problem of the eternal providence of God. For us to not have a good grasp on the gospel and to go straight to this question would be kind of like underage drinking. Um, uh, this doctrine is kind of like top shelf, single malt, barrel aged, like 100 proof kind of stuff, and it takes maturity, self-control in order to experience it. And, and so uh, if maybe this doctrine we're talking about, it just, it's like, I can't handle this. Go back to chapters one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Study those even more to get to know them. But I hope that today is maybe an opportunity for greater maturity for us as we get to see what the scriptures really say instead of what we just want them to say. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read the text here, starting at verse 14, and there's a word I want you to look for. It's the word will. Now, it's not the future tense will, like I will, but it's rather the word will as in God's will or my will or human will. I want you to pay attention to that word because it's a very important word in Romans 9. So let's begin at verse 14. <clears throat> if you remember back to last week, 
Uh, Paul says, wrestling with the problem of Israel, falling away from the faith, he says that it's not the, the children of flesh, the genetic descendants of Abraham who are the ones who inherit the promise, but those who uh, believe the promise, who are called by the gospel. And he gives the example of Jacob and Esau. Before they ever did anything good or bad, uh, the purpose of God in election stood uh, to prefer Jacob over Esau, even though Jacob was the younger. And so we pick up with that idea, which evokes a response in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Uh Uh-uh. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And this is the verse. This is the one you want to underline. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, think back to our Old Testament reading today. The scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory even whom he ha- even us whom he has called not from the Jews only but also from the Gentiles as indeed it is he says in Hosea those who are not my people I will call my people and who is not beloved I will call beloved And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. So perhaps you noted the the difficulty there, right? We're going to work through that. I'm going to try to not pass out while I do this. So I'm going to write on this balloon a word. And it's a word on which most of popular American Christianity is based. You know what that word is? It's called free will. It's something we all kind of believe in naturally. We all believe in freedom of choice. We can make our own decisions. 
can really do whatever we want, right? And I suppose that's not all entirely bad, right? But when it comes to salvation, when it comes to being saved, Scripture never talks in that language. And in fact, you cannot find in Scripture a doctrine or a teaching of free will. Now, so we can say that we as human beings have free will as it pertains to the things right in front of us. So I suppose there's a certain amount of free will when it comes to are you going to get gas at Casey's or Pump and Pantry? Or are you going to get coffee at McDonald's or Starbucks? Or even, I suppose there's a certain amount of free will on whether you go to church at Holy Cross or someplace else. Uh, there is a certain amount of free will, it would seem, in front of us, in the things below us, the things right in front of us. Uh, but when Scripture talks about salvation, about conversion, about entering into the kingdom of God, it actually never talks in the language of free will. Scripture might make an appeal to us and say, repent and believe the good news of the gospel, but when it talks about our ability to do that, it never says anything positive. Scripture teaches that apart from Christ, apart from the Holy Spirit giving us faith, that we actually will always reject God. We're just that creative in our sin, that we'll always find a loophole, a way to wiggle our way out, even if that's a really religious-looking way. But um, so, and, and this gets into American Christianity, this concept of free will, because so much of American popular Christianity, especially in what we call the evangelical world, is based on, I chose Jesus. Why are you a Christian? I have decided to follow Jesus. There's even a popular hymn called, I have decided to follow Jesus. <clears throat> but when we look at the text here, I want you just to look with me, very plain and simple, Look what it says in verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but what does it depend on? God who has mercy. Friends, that's where salvation's rooted. It's not rooted in the will of you or me. It's rooted in the will of God. And so if we're going to have a really honest scriptural, let's go through each verse and just see what it says, um, it actually kind of does this to free will. I mean, it's just kind of blows it up, right? Now, I'm assuming that this is maybe a moment of what we call cognitive dissonance. You ever heard that term before? Especially in the education world, cognitive dissonance is when you say, I believed in free will as the source of my salvation my entire life, and I always prided myself, and I accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior by my own will and strength. Hallelujah, right? And then we run into the scriptures and what they actually say, and it's like, oh, it doesn't say that? That's just maybe something I believe because it's in the air I breathe culturally? That's a moment of... Uh, cognitive dissonance. Cognitive dissonance is when it's like, oh, I might need to adjust my beliefs, right? We, we're kind of thrown into a little bit of a, of a tailspin and we have to kind of level out again because we believe something and then we realize, oh, that's not necessarily true. Now, cognitive dissonance moments in our faith are opportunities for either greater maturity 
or greater immaturity or even unbelief. And so we have to be kind of careful and guard this moment and ask for the Holy Spirit to be present with us to give us humility. I remember, um, this is just bothering me, so I'm going to pick it up. Um, I remember when, I didn't know there was going to be balloon shrapnel everywhere. Um, I remember when uh, I was in college uh, and I was taking some theology classes for the first time and I kind of went to a Lutheran college as a Baptist. Functionally, I was a Baptist. And even though I went through a, to a Lutheran church and I had always prided that I walked the aisle, I laid my life down to Jesus. I became a Christian because I chose Jesus. And then I remember running into this teaching and I'm like, I can't sleep, <laughs> right? This is just such a new thing to me. But I tell you what, I've come to embrace this doctrine we're learning today. Like this is one of those doctrines that you'd have to pry out of my cold dead hands uh, because it is such a comfort. If we have a mature understanding of what, what God is actually saying here, it is a comfort and it gives you assurance as Luther talked about. Um, before. I want you to note the comfort here. The comfort here is this, is that my salvation, your salvation, doesn't depend upon your will, which is unreliable and weak. It depends upon the unchanging, unbreakable will of God. You see, we've been learning in Romans about grace alone, right? We've been learning about how deep grace goes, that grace goes all the way down to the depths of our sins so that we, we learned way back in chapter 5 that, that when we were at our worst, when we were at our most unlovely moment, when we were the farthest away from God, that is when Christ chose to take on flesh and come and die for us and redeem us and make us his own, when we could offer him nothing but our sin. That's deep grace. But the grace actually has a whole other level to it. And the whole other level to that grace of God is that God did not just do everything necessary for your salvation in sending his son to die for your sins and to rise from the dead, but God has done something even greater. God has actually done everything necessary to place that salvation into your hands and into your heart so that you would be converted by his grace alone. Scripture says that he predestined you that he called you, that he elected you, that he foreknew you before you had done nothing good or bad in order that his purpose in election might stand. This is beautiful because it means that I can sleep at night knowing that God will hold me, God will hold you, and nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ and nothing can pluck you out of his hand. I just want to share with you a couple quotes from the big book here, the Book of Concord, the Confessions of the Evangelical Lutheran Church. So many good things in here. This is just one quote I want to share with you. It says this, In his counsel, intention, and preordination, God not only prepared salvation in general, but he also graciously considered each and every one of the elect, you, that is, those who would be saved through Christ, and he chose them for salvation. Ah, oh, it's beautiful. And it gets even better. Look what he says here. He says this, and this is something we got to hold on to in the midst of suffering. God preordained what sort of crosses and sufferings he would use to conform each one of his elect to the image of his son 
and that the cross of each should and must work together for good, the good of that person because they are called according to his purpose. Uh, last two weeks ago in Romans, we heard about that, right? That God works all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. This is true, and we can embrace this because of predestination, because God has called us and predestined us in Christ. It doesn't depend upon our will. Now, at this point, just as we're reveling in the sweetness and the good news of this, all of a sudden, another thought comes to our mind, a thought that you may have had already, and that is this. Well, if God alone is the one who wills our salvation, does that mean that God does not will the salvation of some? For example, we have those perplexing verses, 17 and 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whoever he wills. That language of hardening is hard language, right? It's difficult, uh, but my commitment to you as pastor is that we're not going to avoid it. Let's just get in and talk about the tough stuff. Um, some Christians, our friends, the Presbyterians, would say that this verse means that God has not only preordained and elected some to salvation, but he actually preordained some to damnation. Now, I don't believe that this is what the Scripture is actually saying, because we read elsewhere in Scripture that it says God wants all to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that Jesus died for our sins and the sins of the whole world, right? God does not desire or delight in the death of the wicked, but rather that he or she should turn and be saved. But we do have to admit here that there is this majesty, this mystery, this sovereignty of God going on as it pertains to Israel and Pharaoh being hardened. Um, Going back to our Old Testament reading, it talked about Pharaoh being hardened. And it's really interesting. You know, go back and read that whole story, all those chapters about all the plagues. And there's something in there about hardening. It's repeated multiple times. And it's very interesting. If you read through that whole narrative carefully, you'll see that sometimes Pharaoh hardens his own heart. It says, and Pharaoh was warned by God and he hardened his own heart. And then sometimes it's a passive. It says that Pharaoh's heart was hardened and it's not entirely clear if Pharaoh's doing the hardening or God. And then sometimes, especially later on in that story, it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Uh, once again, from the Book of Concord, we have a very helpful passage here. It says this, it says, that God hardened Pharaoh's heart so that Pharaoh continued to sin, and so that the more he was admonished, the harder of heart he became, was a punishment for his previous sin and his horrible tyranny, which he imposed upon the children of Israel in many various and completely inhuman ways, against the indictment of his own heart. What that's saying is that, is that this hardening, this handing over to unbelief is a punishment for unbelief. And you might remember back in Romans 1, we talked about this. It says in Romans 1 that about the Gentiles, 
that God handed them over to their sin, that the punishment for sin was to say, you can have that if you want. And, and I believe that's what this language of hardening is talking about, that, that when people harden their hearts to the real invitation of God to hear the gospel, that there is at a certain point a handing over to that unbelief um, where God is hardening rather than just the person. And that's a punishment for unbelief. But the thing I want you to see here, as uncomfortable that, as that is, I want you to see something here. And this is something we can easily miss. Even in the midst of that hardening of Pharaoh's heart, God is working a purpose of salvation so that more might believe and be saved. Look with me at verse 17. It says, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, what purpose? So that Pharaoh would be damned? No. For this very purpose, I have raised you up that what? That I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Do you see that there? That, that it's actually through this tragic, mysterious hardening of Pharaoh where he's given over to his unbelief, where he's going to crash and burn. It'll be through that defeat of that tyrant publicly and, and the, the putting down of his oppression publicly that will cause other people, even in Egypt, to look and to say, this is the one true God and believe. Now, what's even more mysterious, and this is what's going to be the mystery we're going to weave our way through in Romans 9, 10, and 11, this is what Paul's saying, is that now, surprisingly, Israel has traded spaces with Pharaoh. Who is the one that has hardened themselves to the point of being hardened? It's Israel. Not all of Israel, because Paul has, says himself, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews, I'm a Jew myself. And, and there's a faithful remnant chosen by grace that's been saved, and we'll see that all the way through Romans 9, 10, and 11. But the, the mystery that we're going to delve into in these coming chapters is, is that it's actually through this partial hardening of Israel where Israel said, no, I don't want that salvation offered to me, that it will now go to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people, and they'll be welcomed into the family. And Paul will tell us in Romans 10 and 11 that the door is still open that they can still repent, that there's still an opportunity for Israel to be saved. And yet, in the mystery of God's sovereignty, he's allowed this partial hardening, but he uses it for the purpose of the salvation of the many. Uh, so, for example, Paul would go around and he would preach in all the synagogues, synagogues uh, in the Greek and Roman world, and you'll note a theme in Acts that he shows up at the synagogue. A few people believe, but most of the people want to throw stones at Paul, literally. And then there's a point in Acts where Paul just like throws the dust to the, uh, you know, he shakes the dust off his feet and he says, I'm going to the Gentiles, guys, because they'll listen. And he goes to the Gentiles and he becomes the apostle to the Gentiles and those who were not God's people are brought in as God's people. So what do we do with this? I mean, this is some, some deep, mysterious stuff. Maybe the opposite of popular American Christianity. So what do we do in our cognitive dissonance? Well, I've got three ideas here. <clears throat> the first is this, very important. The first is, shh, let's be quiet. 
We don't want to be like those people in the text, those imaginary responders in the text who say, but what, is God not fair? Shh. Let's all just be quiet. Let's worship. And let's let God be God. Can we do that? Can we say, God, you do you. You be you, God. I mean, because being God's above our pay grade, right? We got to just let God be God. Um, I mean, there's a certain point where if you focus on this mystery so much and you try to figure out all the logic and the reasoning of it, you will go in wrong directions. Uh, you'll either say, it's all predestination, so I can do whatever I want. It doesn't matter. Nope. Or we could say, um, you know what? It's all predestination, so maybe I'm not elect, and we just fall into despair. Um, no, we don't want to go that way. We, we want to just let God be God. And when we let God be God, what has God done? It moves us to number two. We are called to seek Christ where he promises to save. We don't want to go looking for God in the dark places of the mysteries of predestination. That's not the good place to go looking for God. That's like trying to go looking for God in a dark, deep cavern. It's dark down there, and you're going to lose your cell service, right? Uh, we want to keep our connection with the place where God has revealed himself. We're not going to worry about those questions of why some and not others. We're going to come, and we're going to stay at the place where God has revealed his heart for all people. And that is in the word and in the sacraments. That's why we come to church, friends, because when we come to church, it confirms our election. It's where you were baptized and, and sealed and made one of God's children and marked with his promises. That's where we go to find our election. That's where Christ is there for us. It's why we come and we hear the preaching of God's word, that Christ died for your sins, that Christ has chosen you. He has preordained you for salvation, and you're here hearing it. And so believe it and receive it. It's yours. That's why we come to the sacrament of the altar, the Lord's Supper, and receive continually the very body and blood of God's Son, because how could we ever doubt our own election as we take, eat, and drink the very salvation of God for us? As sure as we taste it, eat it, and drink it, we can be assured that we are God's elect and that we will not fall away. And finally, most importantly, we rest, rejoice, and take risks. What do I mean by this? Um, I'm going to share with you another Luther quote. This, is, this one's golden. I've, I've had this underlined, and I go back to this for like 20 years. Um, I should make a plaque and put it in my office. This is what it says. It says, but now that God has taken my salvation out of the control of my own will, and he's put it under the control of his and promised to save me, not according to my working or running, Romans 9, right? But according to his own grace and mercy, I have the comfortable certainty that he's faithful and he will not lie to me. And so, friends, knowing that salvation depends entirely upon the will of God, not just the will of God to send Christ for you, but the will of God who by the Spirit has placed it into your hands and into your heart, by faith. That leads us to rest. It depends upon the will of God and not my weak, fallible will. It causes us to rejoice. Who gets all the glory for our salvation? Christ alone. And friends, we get all the comfort. And then it leads us to take risks, right? Knowing that 
salvation is out of your hands and in God's hands doesn't lead us to be lazy or lax or loose in our morals. It actually leads us to take risks to say, I can daringly follow Jesus because I know he's got a strong grip on me. And if I lose much or little, I still have him. And he won't let go of me. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. We're going to close this sermon in prayer, but we're going to sing our prayers today. This hymn we're going to sing, uh, hymn 573, Lord, tis not that I did choose thee. Um, this is both a prayer and a confession, and I just invite you to, to rise, uh, sing this with me, and let's make this our own prayer and confession to God, having heard his word. remain standing as we come before the Lord in prayer. God, our Father, we come before you and we worship you and we adore you. Lord, we acknowledge your, your sovereignty. We acknowledge your rule over all. We acknowledge that you are God and we are not. And Lord, we let you be God in our hearts and minds. And yet, Lord, we rejoice uh, in the mystery of our salvation that it is not that we have chosen you, but that you have chosen us. Lord, when we love you, it's because you first loved us when we did not love you at all. Lord, help us to mature in our understanding of our own conversion, 
uh, so that we truly give you all the glory, all the praise, all the honor for the grace that chose us when we did not even want you. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we just continue to pray as a congregation for our continued growth and maturity as we study this epistle of Romans. We pray that you would give us a a deep desire and hunger for your word and for the deep things of scripture. Uh, Lord, help us to continually mature in our faith as brothers and sisters in this fellowship. Lord, in your mercy. Father, we pray for all those who rule over us. Uh, We pray for uh, our president. We pray for uh, the governor of this state, the mayor of this city, for all those uh, in Congress. We pray, Lord, for all those uh, on the Supreme Court. Lord, we're thankful for just and good laws uh, that protect and do not harm. And so today, Lord, we give you our particular thanks for the overturning of Roe. And yet, Lord, we pray with humility that you would make us people who truly love life from its very beginning to its very end in everything that we do. Let us not be a nation divided and torn apart, but let us be a nation united around common love and common purpose. We pray, Lord, for all those who strive to help those in difficult situations, uh, especially here in Kearney, our own collage center. Uh, We ask you, Lord, that you would be with those who are in difficult, uh, perplexing situations, that you would be merciful to them and help them. Lord, in your mercy. Gracious God, come alongside those who experience any difficulty in this life, hunger or homelessness or poverty or or lack of economic opportunity. Uh, We pray, Lord, that your church would shine with justice and mercy and love for those in our communities. Uh, We thank you for the gift of life as our Lord has hallowed life uh, from the time in his mother's womb all the way to his death upon the cross. And now, as he lives and reigns as the Lord of life, he has sanctified all of our lives. And so, Lord, help us to truly love our neighbor in every way. Lord, in your mercy. Gracious Father, we pray for the mission of our congregation and the mission of our district and our synod. Uh, We ask you, Lord, that you would give us unity and, and make us always eager for the opportunity to share the gospel and advance it in the places you have placed us. We ask you that you would be with our own synod, that you'd be with our synodical president, Matthew Harrison, with our district president, uh, Richard Snow, and with our circuit visitor, uh, Rob Kiefner. Uh, We ask you, Lord, that in your compassion, uh, that you would richly bless them as they lead us. Lord, in your mercy. Uh, Gracious Father, we pray for those who need your intervention and your healing. Uh, Be with them, Lord, as they bear their crosses. We pray especially for our brother Wally Beck, that you would bring him strength of body and back to health, that you'd be with our brother Glenn Decker as well and with Jen Rydell. Come alongside our sister Izzy Warrington in her continued afflictions and be with her parents and siblings and whole family. Be with Mike Henry and Roger Peterson. 
Lord, grant healing and mercy to all those who stand in need. Lord, in your mercy. Uh, Gracious Father, we pray and we commit all these prayers into your hands. We give you thanks uh, that you hear us, that you love us, that your ears are open to us and your heart is attentive. Help us to have patience as we await uh, the answers to these prayers in your good time. And give us eyes to see them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.